Hello, and welcome to the 25th episode of the Ocean Decade Show, a podcast dedicated to guiding you down the yellow brick road of this global initiative to transform the ocean, housed within the American Shoreline Podcast Network family. My name is Taylor Gales, and I'm your host and tour guide on our adventure through the ocean decade. So, Happy New Year! <laughs> we record these episodes in uh, the New Year ones in December, so it's not technically New Year yet, but Happy New Year to those listening. This is officially the first episode of the Ocean Decade Show for 2023, and now we've entered into the third full year of the Ocean Decade, and time sure does fly. Uh, I can't believe I've been lucky enough to do so many episodes of this show and excited to see where uh, where it takes me and the Ocean Decade in 2023. Um, so this month's podcast is focused on the specifics um, and rubbing up against an area of marine science that I don't know too much about. Uh Common listeners know that I was trained as a marine social scientist, and so this is about as far <laughs> different as you can get. Um, so we'll all be learning together. Uh, and isn't that a lot of people's New Year's resolutions, you know, to learn new things? So if Expanding Horizons is on your list of resolutions, then this is the episode for you. <laughs> so I'll let my guest describe uh, the program in more detail. But t- today, this month, we're going to be talking about the Ocean Biomolecular Observing Network. OBON, which will be our acronym of the month. But I wanted to start out and set the scene regarding the importance of observation networks. Um, the idea of observations is not new to this podcast. If you've been a listener since at least May 2021, you may might remember my conversation with uh, Dr. Salvatore Arrico, head of ocean science section at the IOC, the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission, uh, where we discussed the UN's Global Ocean Science Report. One of the emphases I made during that episode was the importance of observation and simply obtaining data. Yes, analysis and the rest of the scientific method that follows observation and data collection is really important, but due to the vast scale of the ocean and the sheer number of potential things to collect, to observe, it it can be really difficult. Uh, So where I've talked about the importance of ocean observation overall, this month's episode is going to focus on one aspect of ocean observation and data gathering in particular, biomolecules. <laughs> I told you we're, we're far away from my social science uh, background here. So ocean life from viruses to whales is built from biomolecules and biomolecules such as DNA infuse each drop of ocean water, grain of sediment, breath of ocean air. So think about that the next time you're, you're at the beach and you, you jump in the water. Uh, So OBON is an endorsed Ocean Decade program uh, that aims to develop a global system that will allow science and society to understand ocean life like never before. The program aims to transform how we sense, harvest, protect, and manage ocean life, which faces multiple stresses, as you all know, including pollution, habitat loss, climate change. It will also help communities detect biological hazards like harmful algal blooms and pathogens, Uh, and really be a key component of the next generation ocean observing systems. So they have four different objectives uh, that I can uh, let my guests get into, but I want to let them introduce themselves. So first we'll start out with with Margaret and then go to Sophie. Welcome. Thank you so much for, for joining the podcast this month. Oh, it's a pleasure. So I'm Margaret Leinen, and I am the director of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, which is part of the University of California at San Diego. Hi, uh, I'm Sophie Siave. I'm the CEO of the Partnership for Observation of the Global Ocean, uh, which is uh, the organization that leads OBON, and it's a consortium of oceanographic research institutions from all over the world, working together to implement global ocean observations. 
Fantastic. So I know you both have had, especially especially Margaret, have had a long history with the Ocean Decade. But if you could just answer for, for our listeners, what's been your path to the Ocean Decade? Margaret, then Sophie. Well, uh, I am an oceanographer, and I studied the... Um, the history of the ocean and especially the way that the ocean interacted with climate and how that changes with time. Uh, And I came to the ocean decade uh, as a result of that work and was asked to participate in the group that planned the decade. And this was a group from all over the world and it was oceanographers and ocean policy experts. And what we did was uh, help the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission, which uh, is the, the uh, implementing organization for the decade. We helped them think about how, you know, what, what, what is a decade? How, how, does, uh, how does this work? Uh, what kinds of programs uh, are we looking to have uh, as part of the decade? And how do we engage people in it? And what kinds of activities would take place? And how would you choose them? And so forth. So that was an amazing two years of meetings to uh, to really suggest to IOC how this would be organized. Uh, and then now I serve on the Decade Advisory Board, which is uh, a new group that reviews the um, the proposals that are made to the decade and provides advice on things like uh, engaging youth in the decade and um, connecting with governments and so forth. So uh, that's been uh, a path that has. I'm now in the fourth year of working on the planning and the execution of the decade. And it's been a really amazing journey uh, to see this uh, develop. And as you said at the beginning, Taylor, we're starting into the third year. And it is so much more in so many ways. It's There's so much more science. It's so much more exciting. Uh, it's so much broader and uh, it's so much more exciting than than I thought it would be four years ago. And that's why you stick around and, and, and do it, you know? And I think, because I've worked on the Ocean Decade just a little bit less long than you have, and I can't really imagine an Ocean Decade without you, Margaret, so we're lucky to have you involved overall and then with Obon in particular. Well, thank you. Sylvie, how has your path been to the Ocean Decade? Yeah, so I've been working for POGO for... Uh, about a decade myself now and Pogo's been very much the best acronym by the way that I think I've had on the podcast in a good long while Pogo (laughs) and whenever we talk about our logo um it's it always makes people chuckle that Pogo rhymes with logo oh gosh is it a Pogo stick though is there like a secret hidden Pogo stick in the background of the logo (laughs) (laughs) no but that's an idea that's a missed graphic design opportunity (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so so Pogo has been involved uh, also in the planning uh, for the decade. Uh, so it's something that's been uh, very present in our discussions and in our meetings over the last three or four years, I guess. And now, now that the decade has been launched, we're helping to coordinate some of our member engagement. Uh, 
in particular through programs like Obon, which uh, which is the first uh, program, first hopefully of of several that the Pogo um, has submitted and is leading um, under the umbrella of the decade. That's fantastic. So Obon is this really instrumental program, I think, to what the ocean decade is and can be and should be uh, because of the importance of ocean observation. So I got into it a little bit with, you know, why, from my point of view, ocean observations are crucial. But, you know, do you have any, how do you describe to, you know, other partners or funders or different things why ocean observation is important? Do you have any kind of key uh, examples that you give them? Yes, as I briefly mentioned earlier, POGO is all about ocean observations. And and one of the pillars of our mission is to actually advocate for the importance of ocean observations and, and the need for funding for the global ocean observing system. Uh, and this is because ocean observations are critical to so many different aspects of our daily lives. Uh, for example, weather forecasts are very much reliant on accurate ocean observations. And then, of course, weather forecasts and the information they provide are critical to um, aspects such as the the global economy, financial markets, and things like food security, being able to know uh, what's going to happen with our crops, for example, uh, and and also for things like aquaculture. Um, Ocean observations are also key to managing and conserving our natural resources uh, and and our oceans' biodiversity. And that's where, in particular, biological and biomolecular observations come in. So maybe I can hand over to Margaret to, to talk a bit more about the, the biological uh, and biomolecular side of things. Sure. Um, you know, I was listening to some of the uh, sessions of the Convention on Biological Diversity uh, over the last couple of weeks. and. The, the goals of the convention and of the, the interest in biodiversity are enormous, and they really uh, are daunting when you think about uh, trying to understand all of the different species that are in the ocean and then understand how many of them there are and whether they are being influenced by climate change and how, uh, and how they're influenced by pollution and so forth. And so all of those are wrapped up in just understanding the biological life of the ocean. And what Oban is really designed to do is make that a lot simpler. Because as you introduce this, Uh, Taylor, you said every organism in the ocean is made up of biomolecules. And so that means that the water in the ocean uh, receives these biomolecules, either as metabolic waste, or sometimes it's uh, uh, things that are shed, mucus or uh, skin cells or or scales uh, that go into the ocean. Sometimes it's uh, material from the decomposition of, th- of things that have died in the ocean. But all of that is biomolecule, and all of that material goes into the water. And that means 
that we can sample the water and find out what's been living in that water and to a great extent how much uh, of it. So it just simplifies the task of trying to understand the biodiversity of the ocean so much because you don't have to find organisms, catch them, identify them, and count them in order to do biodiversity work. And of course- Yeah, I was going to say that just sounds- you know, so much easier, (laughs) you know, you send a boat out or you send a buoy out or, you know, you can just collect water instead of, you know, having to (laughs) try to catch the things and count the things that you need to study. That's right. Uh, So of course, there's a lot of work that has to be done in order to do that. You have to have a catalog, if you will, of the, the genetics of the, um, Uh, of the different organisms. And in order to apply it to other kinds of studies, like uh, studying fish stocks, you have to really um, understand that issue of how you use the biomolecules to characterize how many fish there were. But that's all part of the active research of uh, programs like the Ocean Biomolecular Observing Network. So over the period of 10 years, we are gathering projects uh, from organizations and people that are doing this work, putting them together so that they're all connected, the network, uh, and then helping them with issues like um, how you turn the information from qualitative identification to quantitative measurement. And on the technology side, how we uh, build sampling devices and instruments and platforms that make it easy to get out to wherever you're, you're going to make the measurements and, uh, and to sample them. And eventually to have those sampling devices go out by themselves and make the measurements on the sampling device and then just send back the information. So that's our stretch goal for the decade of being able to do this, as we say, autonomously. That's a fantastic kind of overview and got to a lot of the different questions that I was going to ask. And so it's fantastic to see both where it is now and where you want to go. And it just seems like such a big part of this and such a big role that you all are playing is through capacity building, you know, that ocean observation is so crucial, but it's not, there's not equal opportunity for ocean observation around the world with, um, between developed and developing nations, things like that. So can you tell me a little bit about how building capacity is going to be such an important part of, uh, Oban going forward? Yeah, you're absolutely right uh, about there not being equal opportunities and uh, equal resources in terms of human resources, skills, expertise, but also infrastructure um, distributed around the world. So, so one thing that Pogo and and in, in particular Obon here. Um, aims to do is to provide the training, um, but also the equipment 
uh, and uh, sort of long-term support to be able to, for scientists and research centers, particularly in developing countries, to be able to conduct uh, these, these measurements and observations. Uh, so so the, the aim for OBON is to set up local centers of excellence in uh, distributed in different regions uh, of the world, in particular um, what we call the Global South, uh, to, to, be, to set up these centers with the right equipment and trained personnel to be able to conduct uh, biomolecular observations uh, routinely. And, and have the data uh, contributed to uh, a global uh, database or, or, or network of databases. Um, one thing that's particularly interesting with biomolecular and in particular eDNA observations is the, uh, the existence already of projects and programs that are um, using citizen science to to collect data and to and to share the data. So there's there's a few projects um, already that are part of of Obon, uh, which are doing this, working with local communities, distributing kits uh, for people to be able to go out on on small boats or even just sampling from the shore to take samples, uh, water samples, filter them, and then send the samples back to a laboratory where where the the eDNA is uh, is analyzed and um, and the, the people but that's really cool because most of the times when when I think about citizen science at least it's like bird watching or like you know checking to see if you see and so what's been sorry to focus in on this but the reaction of you know citizen scientists that they're just collecting water you know do they how do you educate these communities and help them understand you know the importance of it that's so fascinating to me because to them it could be like we're collecting cups of water to then send around the world <laughs> yeah no it's, it's fascinating one of our scientists uh, encountered that issue uh, when he was working in peru and he's actually Peruvian, but he now works in the United States. So he spends a lot of time visiting oceanographic institutions and working in Peru. And he was working with a group that wanted to uh, get citizen scientists involved in, in uh, sampling coastal water for eDNA. And so what they did was they uh, got a group of, of uh, interested people from the coast uh, together, and they went out in a small boat, and they collected the water and talked about what they thought might be there. And then uh, and these were people that, that lived on the coast, so they said, well, you know, we see this fish all the time, and there are these shrimp, and of course there's the kelp and whatnot. So they said, okay, come back in three days and we'll tell you what was there. And so then the scientists went off and they did the eDNA analysis. And three days later, uh, the hope, hopefully, hope, hope to be citizen scientists um, came and they said, oh, yes, you know, there's this fish that you know, and there's this kelp that you know, and there's this shrimp. But look at what else is there. And they were able to say, you know, we saw the evidence of 
this group of octopus. Uh, we saw evidence that uh, there had been dolphins in the region. Uh, and they just went down the list of all of the organisms that they had identified in that water. And the people were so surprised because there were the things that they knew that they had seen, but all of these other things that had been invisible to them. And um, Francisco said it just really got them excited about what they were going to be able to reveal as a result of being citizen scientists. So I think that, uh, well, I, I loved the story. It hadn't occurred to me that you would do that in sort of do this aha for them where they discovered for themselves uh, what was there. But I think that that's a great way of engaging citizens in sampling water to understand what's in the water. That was a great, yeah, I love, I love examples like that because it really just, you know, (laughs) in the juxtaposition between people who live on the coast and who understand the ocean in one way and then having their kind of perspectives changed and helping them understand the ocean in a different way. And then that kind of validation of citizen science and, uh, and hard science is really, you know, what the ocean decade should all be about. You know, we're trying to grow capacity. We're trying to get to broaden the, the view of the ocean, broaden people who are engaged with, with ocean science. So that's, that's fantastic. It it was fantastic. And one of the other things that he said was uh, once they had gotten excited about it like that, it was much easier for the scientists to say, and this is the precise way that you have to take the sample. And this is, you know, these are all of the, the careful things that you have to do and, you know, annotating the sample and so forth. So all of that detailed stuff that scientists need became much more easy. Uh, They became more easily convinced to do all of that stuff that's necessary to annotate the sample when they saw what was going to happen. And of course, the other piece was that they were promised that they would see the results went out of their of their analyses. So, um, you know, I I think it, it sort of changed our whole thinking about how to engage people uh, that have never done something like this in actually taking those samples for us. And those are the sorts of lessons that you know, because Obon is this global network that you can then bring to other places and really help understand, help other uh, p- parts of the world better understand, you know, how how to engage with citizens and figuring out what works in one area. It might not work in another, but it's good to have, you know, baselines to work off of. Absolutely. And it's a way that the network can really add value to the organizations that are participating in the network by sharing those experiences uh, sharing information about methods, sharing information about, um, you know, what went wrong as well as what went right. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's just as important, but sadly we don't see a lot of papers entitled how we screwed this up and how you can learn from us. <laughs> oh, that is such a great point. You know, one of the most famous oceanographers in the world 
was Walter Monk. He just died a few years ago at 101. And uh, all that good he, sea air. <laughs> I, right, right. And keeping his mind very active. And he, for years, tried to get journals to accept papers about uh, negative results. And he said, uh, you know, in the the decades that he was an oceanographer, he saw people um, trying to do the same experiment when people knew that it was the wrong way to go about it or trying to prove something that had been disproved, but people didn't know about it because it wasn't published. That's another big thing that yeah, we should have a whole, I should have a whole podcast episode on that. And that's something that we should convene around with the Ocean Decade too. Oh, please do. That would be fun. Please I always do. love, that's the most fun thing about this podcast is half the times I, I have ideas of what I'm interested in focusing on and what we can do. And then things come up and I get to talk to fascinating people from all over. And so it's, uh, that's the best. What gap does this program fill in the Ocean Decade's goals towards 2030? You know, what was the, when this was proposed as a program, what was the reception like? How have people, you know, been interested in the work that Oban's been doing thus far? Yeah, I I think it's been really well received. And it was a long overdue program that that needed to come about. Um, Pogo started in 1999. And one of the first discussion items was the need for better networked biological observations and for biological observations to to become more routine in the same way that physical observations are. So in those days, there was a network starting up uh, called Argo um, of distributed um, profiling floats. I remember that from my my NOAA days. Yep. <laughs> I've heard of Argo floats. Yep. Yeah. So, so that's a, a brilliant program for, in the beginning, it was for temperature and salinity measurements um, down to 2000 meters. And with, you know, the, the floats were just out there um, permanently and uh, collecting data and sending it uh, back to shore when it popped up to the surface every 10 days or so. Um, but there, there, so far, there isn't an equivalent of, of that program for biological measurements. And, and this has been discussed over and over in POGO, in GOOSE, uh, Global Ocean Observing System, in many different networks. Um, all the observing networks have the best acronyms just because yes. of the O's in it. It really helps. You know, you're not stuck with like a bunch of consonants. And so. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Goose is another good one. Um, yeah. So, so I think, you know, we're, we're finally at, at the stage now where, where the technology is there, the, um, you know, there, there's a huge uh, societal motivation for, um you know, looking at what's living in the ocean and and what what it's doing and um, what impacts humans are having on on marine life and and also a recognition that we need the ocean to survive and we need fish and and other resources, uh, biological resources from the ocean. So I think that the time is is really ripe now for for us to make that final push to to get a proper biological 
observing network uh, up and running. And and I think the the decade very much recognised that need and and welcomed Obon, um, which hopefully will will fill that uh, gap. So, and from my kind of <laughs> my perspective, where how do we even get to that? You know, what kind of is it something? that the UN has to do in order to make kind of a biological ocean observation network a thing? Is it funding from countries? Like what would need to happen in order to turn this from, you know, a program and during the decade to a full blown network? Yeah. So I I think it's um, possibly following a similar model to, to the Argo network. So, I mean, one of the things that needs to, to continue to happen is that, technological development, um, as Margaret mentioned earlier, um, you know, there's a lot of, of testing and, and prototyping um, happening at the moment to be able to um, add the, the right sensors and, and the right uh, equipment onto things like floats and buoys and other instruments that are already making uh, physical measurements. So, so there's there's still you know over the next uh, what's left of the decade there'll be some more work to to continue on the technology development. But then once uh, we have really all the technology that's required, it's it, it is a case I think of of countries uh, to step up and fund the deployment uh, of the instruments. But this isn't a case where. Um, just because I, I think I mentioned to you all before we start recording, I work on shipping decarbonization. And one of the things that we keep pushing to people is that the technology doesn't have to be developed. It has to be scaled. And so is it the same thing here? Like, do we know how to do all the observations that we need? And then it's just about getting it, you know, cheaper, faster, better, or are there th- still things that we need to, to figure out how to, how to do? Um, I think it's, it's possibly a, a bit of both. Um, I mean, the Argo is is just one one instrument, but if you look at the global ocean observing system, even um, the the system that's doing only physical measurements, there's there's a, a lot of different platforms out there, and there's there's a role for the really high tech end of the spectrum as there is for for the really low tech and affordable end. Um, so I think it's. It's a case of of having um, a variety of of different technologies at different prices. Going back to the capacity de- development aspects as well, uh, I think we need to recognise that things like Argo floats uh, aren't affordable for a lot of countries, and we also need to to look at the um, cheaper alternatives. And the citizen science, I think, can can play a big role there as well. Margaret, anything from your perspective on any of the points that uh, I've been raising about, you know, going from program to network? Well, I think that one of the things that we found early on was that in order for people to join a network, that there had to be advantages to them because they were going to do the work. And, you know, why should I align myself with this UN Decade program when I'm the one that's doing all the analyses. And the there are several uh, pieces that are really important for them. One is the uh, making it possible for their 
analyses to easily be combined with other people's analyses to be able to get bigger and bigger pictures of biological diversity and of um, all of the things that the we the questions we ask when we're looking at quantitative aspects. So that meant that that um, understanding methods and techniques, uh, which can be uh, different depending on the the your preferences and the the particular kinds of samples you're working with. Uh, needed to actively be looked at to understand the degree to which they can be, the data from different techniques can be combined. And so that's one of the things that we're doing. Another is that you need to put all of that genetic data into databases. And that can be difficult uh, to, to do. Uh, you have to keep track of a lot of things, and each individual sample has to have all of the information about it, um, where it was taken, when it was taken, what were the conditions, as well as what methods did you use what for uh, biomolecular analysis. So we've also worked to develop applications for people to do that very easily. So, you know, if, if we've made their lives uh, much easier by putting this uh, application out there that they can use to really just push all of their data to the databases easily. Uh, then another thing that we're doing is making it possible for the biological data to be combined with the environmental data very, very easily. And so that's another added advantage to being part of the, the network. And then finally, things like uh, the capacity development that we were talking about, engaging citizen scientists and so forth, putting all of that, uh, those tools at their disposal. So that has uh, now, people are starting to understand what they get from the network and that's really drawing people to the network. So I think that the more organizations and activities and projects are in the network, uh, the more engaging it's going to be. Yeah. You have to answer the, the, so what for people, <laughs> you know, and, and I remember having to do that for, the decade early on is what's the point of this? This seems extra. What, what's the benefit to me? And so you can't just anticipate that, especially, you know, in developing countries that are uh, dealing with enough other issues that then, you know, first world scientists or, you know, developed nation scientists come and say, Oh, well just ha let us have access to your data and we'll do it like this. And so the, the kind of global emphasis of what you all are doing and trying to lower the bar of entry is, is so crucial to the success of, ocean decade programs, but just ocean science around the world overall. <laughs> so Margaret, one thing that I wanted to, you know, ask you is a little bit more about, we keep, we talk about biomolecules, it's in the name of the network. So how do you use, you know, DNA versus RNA versus proteins? Um, how is that used from, from the water? What, what do we get out of taking these, these samples and sampling this sort of, uh, th these sorts of observations? 
Well, biomolecules are essentially any kind of molecules that are part of the building blocks of life. So it can be DNA, RNA, uh, it can be protein, it can be lipids. Um, those are all biomolecules. But in general, there are two types of biomolecular analysis that are the make up most of the biomolecular analyses that are, are going to be done as part of OBAN. And the first one of those uh, is a technique that is called metagenomics. And that's the study of the genetic material recovered from the environmental samples uh, by sequencing it. So in the same way that we People have talked recently. People have talked a lot about uh, PCR sequencing for COVID for vaccine to find out whether you have COVID. So it's do you have the the DNA that is um, is associated with COVID? So uh, the the genetic material is extracted from the samples. In our case. Uh, water samples. Uh, it is then filtered so that you get the biomolecular material and then you sequence that material to identify uh, portions of uh, genetic material. And then those portions are put back together to identify um, specific kinds of genes and to identify um, the, uh, uh, and using those, we can identify the kinds of organisms that are there. So the metagenomics tells us who was influencing the water. Then the other technique is called environmental DNA. And what, and it's a, an approach to find out whether a particular organism was in the water. And so you take uh, segments of DNA from a known organism and you develop a primer, which is a, a tool that says, I recognize that, that DNA. So when you take the water sample and you, and you look at the primer, you can say, oh yes, there was this kind of squid there, or, oh yes, there was this kind of kelp in the water. So the first tells you what uh, everybody that's in the water. The second says is a way to uh, have a tool to say, was there an octopus in the water? So it's a slightly different approach. And it's the, the latter, the uh, environmental DNA, that has the potential for being quantitative because you can say how much DNA from uh, this species of octopus was in the water. And so that helps you look at the quantity as well as whether it was there. So those are the primary tools, but we think that people will start looking at other uh, biomolecules like proteins and lipids uh, for other kinds of analyses as well. That's fascinating. Thank you. Does it tell if humans are in there too? Like, <laughs> yes, absolutely, because we're made up of DNA as well, yeah. and 
you know, if you go into the water, uh, you know, some of your skin sloughs off or, uh, or you may uh, excrete something into the water and uh, <laughs> to, to be, uh, uh, not to be perfectly too, honest. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and so we can find out about people. Also, for coastal environments, we could find out about land animals too. So, oh, if cool, that's uh, something. You know, yeah, there was think about right. So, if there was uh, a ranch next to the, uh, the the coast, you could find out how much impact um, animal waste from that ranch was having in in that particular water. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Cause I did my research on the, the Eastern shore of Virginia where there's a lot of uh, chicken farms <laughs> and that's a big issue in, in the Chesapeake Bay and into the Atlantic is uh, the waste from those, those chicken farms. So I bet there's some work uh, being done with that over here too. Yeah. That, that this is quite topical actually, cause we, we have a, a colleague, uh, Jesse Osabel, who you probably know, um, who who shared with us yes, uh, some yes. um, uh, publication uh, which is on this topic of um, the fact that human and domestic animals have so far been excluded as kind of contaminants. So, you know, if you find uh, some human DNA in your environmental sample, you should probably assume that it's contamination from the person who hand handled the sample. But um, him and, and his uh, co-authors are actually arguing that we could get some really valuable information from um, looking at the human and uh, domestic animal uh, traces over time to, to, to look at how our, our um, impact has been evolving over the years. That would be fascinating and understanding how it's different in different areas, because one of the things that I think a lot of people forget when we look at the ocean is that humans are part of this ecosystem too, <laughs> that we need to be part of the science, the management and everything in between that if we don't account for the human factor, then we're missing a big chunk of what's interesting and what's important about the ocean. Cause you can't manage, you can manage fish, but they're going to go where they want. You got to manage the people. <laughs> so one, uh, that I wanted to, I, one question that I ask every single one of my guests. And so, um, Start with Sophie, then go to Margaret. So going back and speaking of the ocean decade overall here. So we reached 2030. Looking back, what would be a, a quote, successful decade, according to you? What would have happened either in the Oban network or broader? Um, I'd love to hear your perspective, Sophie. Okay, um, tough question. <laughs> but I, I think... I think really that the success for, for me and speaking on, on behalf of Pogo would be that really we have much more equality between, say, the North and South or, you know, developed and developing countries in terms of how, uh, how much we're able to observe our own coastal waters, for example. And um, so, so that observations being made are being made in the Southern Hemisphere and are being made by those countries rather than being made by ships and teams of scientists from developed countries going over and making measurements and, and then leaving with the data. So I think that empowerment and also associated with that, the spread of um, the coverage of, of ocean observations uh, has will have become 
a much more global. I think that that would really be the uh, um, tremendous outcome from the decade. Margaret? Uh, I think success would be, another aspect of success would be that biomolecular analysis has become for the ocean a way to understand large-scale changes in biology and how they are being affected by climate. So right now, we do things like put together years' worth of of, uh, fishing data to say, you know, this species has moved uh, in response to climate change or there are, you know, there's a lot less of this species, we're overfishing it. But that's because we have a lot invested in understanding fish, especially the ones we eat. We don't have as much reason to go out and uh, do that kind of detailed study for the fish we don't eat uh, or for uh things like uh, sea cucumbers or uh, microorganisms or uh, all of the little fish on coral reefs. And what this is going to do is it's going to allow us to be able to understand the change in all of those forms of life in the ocean, not to speak of the microbes, the bacteria and viruses, um, So microbiologists often say um, the world uh, is actually run by the microbes. They just allow us to be around because we're good hosts for them. And uh, and that's very kind of them. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, if they're running so much of the world and we aren't able to track them and understand what they're doing, then we're we're at great risk. So in the same way that satellites transformed our ability to look at land plants and what was happening with land plants, um, I think that biomolecular observations are going to transform our ability to look at life in the ocean. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, super enlightening, and I love the mix of, you know, high-level overviews, and then, you know, specific examples of citizen scientists in in Peru. So where can the audience go to learn more about Oban and all the fantastic things that you're you're going to do in 2023 and beyond? So we have a website. It's under development. So, um, you know, we're hoping that in 2023 it will be relaunched um, with even more information. But um, for now, www.obon-ocean.org is where you can uh, access some information about um, about the Obon program and about the 12 or so projects that we have underneath Obon. Uh, we're also on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I think the, the handles are, are also on the website. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I think the probably the, the first stop is is to check our website and from there you can also contact us directly well 
perfect. I hope that, you know, everyone listening has, has learned a lot. As, <laughs> even if it was an unintentional New Year's resolution, you did learn something new uh, for your 2023, so you can check that off your list. And thank you so much, Sophia and Margaret. I'd be happy to have you all or some of the different projects back on to go into more detail about all of this. And uh, consider me a friend and ally as Oban goes forward and wish you the best of success with this really important uh, program of the Ocean Decade. Thank you very much. It would be great to, to come back and tell you about our progress in, uh, in a little while. We'll put it on the books. <laughs> thank you all, and we'll see you next month. Next month.